0: Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy.
1: Today is a special episode where um, I, Ken Katkin, will be interviewing Howard Bloom, the author of the new book, "The Spy Who Knew Too Much." Um, This is a book of uh, about a a particular uh, Cold War espionage mystery. Um, and it's really sort of the story of, of two particular people. Uh, Pete Bagley, um, who was a, a, a CIA agent um, in the uh, uh, Soviet bloc division, um, who became very caught up in the, in the mole hunts and ultimately was, was, uh, had his career ended by that, um, and uh, John Arthur Paisley, uh, who was a, a, a long-time on-and-off CIA agent who mostly worked in what are the so-called white division's Um, not the counter espionage divisions, um, but who um, uh, who's who ends up after uh, a mysterious suicide, uh, having his 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 story looked into by uh, a long retired uh, Pete Bagley. Uh, Howard Bloom wrote this book. He's an author uh, of many books about espionage and other subjects. Um, He's been a reporter for for many great newspapers, um, uh, including The New York Times. um, And I'm very pleased to have him as my guest on The uh, Politics Guys today. Welcome, Howard.
2: Nice to be here.
1: Yeah. So um, I mentioned in the introduction there that uh, your book ultimately, I think, revolves around the stories of, of two key uh, uh, Cold War figures. Uh, Pete Bagley, um, whose real name was Tennant Bagley, but everybody called him Pete, and, uh, and, and uh, um, John, Arthur, John Arthur Paisley. Um, who was much less well known of a personage, um, really, until his suicide. But his suicide, uh, if it was a suicide, um, got him a lot of attention, and people have been looking into the mystery of that uh, ever since. So let me just sort of start by asking you to explain, you know, who these two protagonists are. First, first Pete Bagley. Who was Pete Bagley?
2: Well, Pete was a started out as a field man in the FBI. He was a, a gung ho spy <laughs> who spent. The early parts of the Cold War, you know, going around back alleys in Europe, uh, putting himself in danger behind enemy lines, and he had a came from a family with a long naval tradition. There are seven boats in the U.S. fleet named after his relatives. It's a whole flotilla, in effect, of, of Bagley people. And he had this this background, this commitment to duty, and he was on the fast track. Uh, to moving up in the CIA hierarchy. He was uh, head of the Soviet counterintelligence division. Arthur Paisley. Arthur Paisley was more of a self-made hardscrabble man. Uh, He grew up uh, in an impoverished family in Arizona. His grandfather supported the family uh, by mowing lawns, uh, getting up early in the morning in the hot Arizona sun, going off and doing mowing the lawns of rich people's houses and paisley gets an early interest in electronics he uses this interest in electronics to lead to the merchant marines Uh, during the early days of of world war ii he's going off on uh, merchant marine uh, missions uh really involving soviet soviet union uh and he's gaining experience in all this Come 1948, he's working for the newly formed United Nations and he's on a mission there with the United, one of the first, many, one of the first doomed uh, United Nations peacekeeping missions in the Middle East. And he's at this point, he's recruited by uh, the CIA uh, to be sort of an a- a asset. And he goes, seems to break off with them. He goes to, uh, University of Chicago, get his his degree, and he joins the CIA uh, as an analyst after graduation. Uh, And this would seem to be, well, really sort of the backwaters or the passive backwaters of the CIA, the deep thinkers, the owls, as they're called. Uh, But Paisley is injecting himself into many very complex operations involving defectors, involving knowledge of Soviet electronics. And these two careers seem on totally parallel but unconnected courses moving up in the hierarchy uh, as as events play out in the book and and sort of brings them together after Paisley's uh, suicide.
1: Right. Now, let's, um, I guess, just because it, it happens first chronologically, let's Let's talk about uh, the, why it was that uh, Pete Bagley uh, had to take uh, early retirement from the agency because he he was retired from the agency before he got particularly interested in, in Paisley's death. So why, why was Bagley um, retired early from the agency?
2: Well, he wasn't necessarily forced out, but in a sense, he was. He, he, his reputation was besmirched. What had happened is... Paisley was working a case in in 1963 in Switzerland. There's a a walk-in. A walk-in is an agent who comes knocking on your door, bearing gifts, and you don't know whether this agent has the real thing, why he's coming to share these secrets, or is he spreading disinformation? Uh, He met with a Soviet major by the name of Yuri Nisenko. Nisenko comes and tells him, uh, that he wants to be an agent in place, go back to the Soviet Union. He'll tell, tell, tell Bigley what's really going on. And Bagley takes this information and he thinks, well, I'm a hero. This is great. And he's called back to Washington and, and to report on all he's found from this agent. He's going to be running behind enemy lines because this is sort of the gold standard you want. You want to get someone right in the enemy's house, right working in Moscow Center. And he has this guy, Nisenko. Well, he starts (laughs) talking to this with uh, James Angleton. James Angleton is the head of uh, counterintelligence at the CIA. He's a mythic figure. In many ways, he was uh, Pete's mentor. Uh, And Angleton says, I want you to read something first before you take everything uh, that this defector is saying as gospel. And he shows him a report from another defector, which includes most of the same information, as well as a very important point. This defector, his name is uh, Golitskin, this defector says that the Soviets will send someone over here to impugn everything I'm saying because they wanna hide a big secret. The secret is that they have a mole inside the agency that's telling them, uh, everything, and that's why we've been blowing uh, investigation after investigation. That's why our agents are being rounded up in the field. When Bagley reads this, he realizes he's been played. But Nosenko goes back to Russia, and he's pretty quiet. In fact, he's very quiet until two months after the Kennedy assassination, in January uh, '64, uh, Nosenko. Comes, <laughs> raises his head again and he says he wants to have a crash meeting with Bagley in Switzerland. So they go through all the meet protocols and they meet outside a, a cinema. Uh, the location of the safe house is, is sort of passed to him in a brush path. And the two agents come up again at this rather posh safe house in Geneva. And then Nisenko makes a startling revelation. He says not only... Was he intimately involved in the case of Lee Harvey Oswald when he first came to Russia and the decision was made by the KGB to allow him to stay in the country? But afterwards, he got after the assassination, he got to review the entire KGB case file on, on uh, Lee Harvey Oswald. So even though Bagley has his doubts about this defector, there's a Warren Commission investigating Russia's ties uh, to uh, the Kennedy assassination and what role uh, Oswald played. He has to take Nisenko back to the United States. So Nisenko was brought back to the United States and he's now vaguely is interviewing him. Uh, interestingly enough, also at during this time, so is John Arthur Paisley interviewing him. They're both involved in interrogation and Bagley is having some real doubts about Nisenko. He's not telling the same story. He's not this. And these doubts. Lead him to take some extreme measures. <laughs> Nisenko is thrown into what a 12 by 12 sort of cell that's built on the CIA camp camp Perry, their training camp. And he's kept there for over a year. He's not allowed even to go out see daylight for a while. Uh, It is harsh is one word. Torture is maybe a a more accurate word. But Bagley feels he's like an Ahab now. He's totally committed to uh, getting his his man. And he feels he's doing it for all the right reasons. Uh, We've got to know what happened to the president. We also, he has to solve this mystery of why, the Soviets would want to send a defector here as an agent in place back into America. And he's convinced. And so is Angleton. There can only be one reason for this. What's the one reason that this defector is working hand in hand with a mole who's already burrowed his way into the U S spy establishment. So that's, that's the setup, I think, of Pete Baker. And then after Nosenko is more or less cleared what happens in the CIA, which is a many ways the book will show a, a nest of viper. There's a, a, you know, the, the, they're cutting, they, they're cutthroat guys who wind up cutting each other's throats. Uh, Pete Bagley is investigated himself for being the mole. He's eventually cleared. He's allowed to go off with honor uh, to become head of the uh, station chief in, in Brussels, Belgium. But when it's time for his retirement, he decides that might be the wiser thing to retire. He can never have the career he wants. Once questions are raised about you, those questions remain with you forever. And also, his way at the Cold War, looking at Nisenko, is now being called paranoia. Sick think. Uh, he's been besmirched and impugned. And so he... he leaves the agency and tries to make another
1: life for himself, uh, in many ways, leaving that behind. But you told the, 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 the long tale of um, the long version of the tale, I guess, of the, the controversy about whether um, uh, Galitzin was the true defector or whether Nosanko was was the true defector. Um, and, you know, because I think part of what you said was that um, Galitzin, who had defected two years before Nosanko, had had predicted that there would be um, many false uh, defectors sent later uh, to discredit Galitzin, because Galitzin was um, alleging that there was a big mole inside the CIA, and, and, the, so- and the Soviets um, very much wanted to discredit that um, allegation. Now, one thing that you mentioned there was that um, the, the CIA uh, investigated a, a number of people as the big mole, um, including um, Bagley. Uh, including Dave Murphy, who was the um, chief of the Soviet bloc division at the time, um, and including uh, Angleton himself. And in fact, there was a, a fairly thorough report written by Claire Petty uh, that concluded that it was Angleton uh, who was the big mole. Um, but I think the ultimate finding of, of the CIA was that there never was a, a big mole. Now, in the, in the book, I think because you, um, although you write with a neutral voice, you somewhat take, um, I think, you know, seem to take Bagley's side sometimes. And would you would you say that's a fair characterization of the book that you're sort of telling uh, Bagley's version of the events, or is that not a fair?
2: I, I think that's uh, very accurate. I, I think Bagley uh, is a hero in this story. He's going on this quest against insurmountable odds, institutional, <laughs> and also from the enemy uh, trying to find this mole. I think Angleton is more sinned against than sinning uh, in many ways. And I think Begley believed that too. Sure, Angleton went to extremes, but I think he was right. That's the job of a counterintelligence agency to look look for moles. And I think that history has showed us that there's sort of been a continuum of treason uh, that the CIA has been infiltrated uh, in the past, and it's hard to believe that it isn't, hasn't been infiltrated now, uh, especially when we're being so lax in our counterintelligence uh, activities.
1: I definitely did um, take that perspective from the book, so I'm, I'm glad that you confirmed that that was your perspective, that, that, um, that Angleton was right more often than he was wrong. Um, and, I, you know, I think the the, the the official verdict of the CIA to this day, as well as I think the verdict of most writers who've written about this, would be contrary to that, right? That, that Angleton caused a lot of damage to the CIA, probably more more harm than good. Um, uh, and let, let me let me go through a few of the um, sort of um, concerns about Angleton. Um, and uh, you know, you can you can respond to them if you like. But um, for for one thing, when when Kim Philby um, uh, 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 was brought under suspicion in, in 1951. After the defections of um, uh, his housemate Guy Burgess um, and also the British diplomat uh, uh, Donald Maclean, um, there was a, a lot of uh, discussion within the um, U.S. intelligence community about whether um, Philby was also a mole. Uh, the, the FBI, uh, particularly William Harvey, um, were absolutely adamant that Philby was was also a, a mole. And Angleton, who was probably in a better position than any in terms of the amount of information that he had. Um, to reach a conclusion on this, he was really the one voice in the intelligence community that wrongly said uh, Philby w- was not a mole. Um, um, I-, I wonder what your thoughts about that are. Angleton
2: and Philby have a very close relationship. Uh, they spend many afternoons drinking together, uh, <laughs> lunches that stretched on from, from one martini to five martinis uh, well into the afternoon. He was fooled by that. And perhaps that added to his energized search for a mole. Did Angleton go too far? Definitely. But was he wrong? Was Bagley wrong? As, as you said, I take a what I believe is a, a revisionist approach to this. I, I, I think Angleton was right that the agency was infiltrated that vaguely, uh, as the book works out, finds a confirmation and is in the existence of the 14th department, which is sending penetration agents uh, into the United States uh, that that Russia is involved in a very aggressive counterintelligence uh, program against the US and that history has proven Angleton right with Hanson, Aldrich Ames, uh, the spy who, who spied for Cuba, uh, time after time again, and it's hard to believe that something like that isn't happening now. Again, Angleton's entire mystique, uh, his persona of being the super sleuth, of being in, working in the darkened room, made him an easy target. But that doesn't mean, and he also went to extremes, as I pointed, we discussed before, that Begley did in Nosenko who was tortured. But the fact that Nasenko was a deception agent, uh, I think Bigley very well establishes that. And I think
1: Angleton was correct with believing that the CIA was infiltrated. You agree that Angleton was wrong about Philby, though, that he was wrong yeah. in that case. He was wrong about Philby. He was
2: mistaken, yes. But, you know, any, you know, yes, and it was a, a big mistake. But at the same time, the, the damage when Angleton was involved in this has already been done. Philby was, at that point removed out of uh, Washington, D.C. Uh, but just because he was mistaken, that doesn't mean he didn't learn from his mistakes and, and still, still give up the pursuit. I mean, both Bagley and Angleton were patriots trying to get to the bottom of why our intelligence operations were becoming undone. They both believed that something was wrong with the agency and they were working to solve
1: that. So let me also ask, let me also ask about uh, Dave Murphy. So um, Angleton also accused uh, Dave Murphy of being the big mole, and he was persuaded of that for, for quite a long time. Um, do you think it's possible that Dave Murphy was the big mole?
2: I, from what I've read, I've, I don't think that, that Murphy was a role. You see, part of the job of counterintelligence is – be always on guard. It's 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 not a, a passive uh, occupation. It's more aggressive. You have to be searching for the mole. Sometimes you're going to focus on the wrong person. Where it becomes dangerous is how you treat the people that that you're focusing your investigations on. That's where Angleton went too far in some cases. Murphy, one of them.
1: Right. Because with Murphy, a- after he a- accused Murphy, the, uh, there was a, a big investigation and, and Murphy was exonerated. But even after Murphy was exonerated uh, and the CIA sent Murphy to be um, head of the CIA station in, in Paris, um, Angleton, uh, you know, called his friends in French intelligence and, and said, don't don't share any information with Murphy because he's a Soviet mole. Um, you know, w- would you think that was um, he was going too far there? I take it, right? Well, I I think at that point, Angleton knew, as the
2: American intelligence establishment knew, that French French intelligence was infiltrated. Uh, it was replete with with at least one mole, and in the int- and in the national interest, he was giving a warning about Murphy. I, I don't. I, I think that was. Uh, perhaps a prudent, until all the facts are out, a prudent position to be in. As as we point out, Bagley was under investigation for a year, a little over a year. And he was exonerated, just like Murphy was exonerated. But this is, you know, the price you pay for counterintelligence. Uh, And I think, you know, these days we've maybe swung too far in the opposite direction. There is not an aggressive counterintelligence division in the CIA uh, there's not a unified counterintelligence approach really between the CIA and the FBI
1: and the Defense Intelligence Agency, and I think it's putting us in jeopardy. It was the conclusion of the CIA that um, Angleton's mole hunt, which which the CIA referred to as the the monster plot or or the sick think, this idea that you know just about every CIA agent of high stature who'd had contact with any Soviets. Um, could could potentially be the mole, and and his refusal to let that go, even after investigations exonerated the individuals that he named, the the, the CIA ultimately concluded that um, that did more harm to U.S. Uh, counterintelligence um, uh, operations than either, than even a mole could have done. Um, do, do, I, I think for excuse me, I think you're talking as the CIA as a monolithic
2: organization. I think some elements in the CIA, certainly William Casey, thought thought that, and he was, you know, director. But there are other elements to this day, very vocal, very well entrenched in the CIA who think just the opposite. And I think Pete Bagley, uh, his story, part of the reason I wrote this book was as a response uh, to the elements in the CIA who have vilified uh, Angleton, who talk about the monster plot, who talk about sick think, uh, who have made Yuri Nisenko a hero. Uh, after he was uh, cleared of all charges, he was put on the CIA payroll. At one point, he goes to the CIA auditorium and, and gives a presentation and he gets a standing ovation uh, from the CIA agents. And I think anyone reading my book will see the point by point that Bagley's investigation makes, which certainly impugned. Uh, Nosenko's credentials.
1: The main uh evidence that initially led both Angleton and um uh Bagley to decide right away in 1963 that they didn't trust uh Nosenko um was the, the warnings of um Galitzin. So I wonder what do you think about Galitzin? Do you think he was a, a true defector whose information was credible?
2: I, I think he was a very complicated man who uh, was a true defector, his information was credible. I think. What you stated about Angleton and Begley's just accepting Galitzin's word on Nisenko. I mean, there's, you know, point by point. I mean, Begley literally wrote a thousand page report point by point saying all the questions, the dubious statements and the outright lies that Nisenko made. He ultimately, Nisenko, was not allowed to. Uh, Testified to the Warren Commission because even the CIA, who re, reinvigorated Nisenko's reputation, uh, they still had doubts about what he was telling the truth about the Kennedy assassination. They said, well, everything else he said is true, but everything he said about the Kennedy assassination was basically a lie or disinformation, but we'll accept him anyway. And I think that's what their, their position boils down to. I don't think I'm doing it injustice by describing it so capriciously. Uh, I think the case against Nisenko is very strong. And if Nisenko was a deception agent, well, I think that justifies what Angleton and Bagley were doing. Uh, as Bagley says, Nosenko is the Rosetta Stone for understanding everything that happened uh, later and everything that was going on, to understand what Russians, Russia's 14th Department uh, which was a deception agency who was doing in their aggressive uh, operations.
1: Yeah, I just want to ask some specific follow-ups on Galitzin, and then talk more about Nosenko. So um, um adamantly uh, told uh, the CIA that the Sino-Soviet split was was a ruse, was a fake. Um, was was Galitzin right about that? At the time, he might have been right,
2: but history proved him wrong. I mean, I, I don't know... Well, you know Galitzin defected what year was it uh 56 i think
1: uh, something like that i think it was uh, a little late a little bit later than that but I, I, I i'll i'll defer to you
2: well again i but i, I you know his information got on, on the Sino-Soviet split got old very quickly his firsthand information that was
1: yeah and he um he also alleged that um there was a big mole not only in the CIA but also um in the State Department, and he alleged that it was Averill Harriman. Um, you, you think that information was correct? He, his allegations about Harriman came out later, and, and
2: I think they were utter, utterly wrong. I mean, you know, you, here's the thing with a defector: <laughs> you have to go over everything they say, and they're, you know, they're not entirely right all the time. And in the course of their defection, uh, they tend to aggrandize things they're saying uh they might come in they want to keep their their job in effect they want to prove that they have a a a reason for working as uh, an analyst and i think as Galitzin's career with the agency went on uh i think he went he embroidered a bit as he as the years passed and i think certainly the
1: harriman speculation was one of those. And by the way, I did just look, I looked up while we were talking when Galitzin defected and it was December of 61. So it wasn't that long before um, Nisenko defected. Uh, and then the, the other one I wanted to ask about Galitzin was um, the, uh, um, the, in the, in the mid 60s when the, the Czech uh, uprising and the Prague Spring happened. Um, Galitzin said he was um, certain that the uprising was staged, that the Soviets were actually behind it and that the Soviets would never uh, invade Czechoslovakia. Uh, so was Galitzin's information good about that? No, he was wrong about that.
2: He also, I mean, you can point to other things too, that Galitzin yeah. said. Galitzin said that Lee Harvey Oswald was, went to the movie theater after the shooting uh, to meet his, his Soviet uh, handler. Uh, but that doesn't mean that he was wrong about other big issues. <laughs> about Nosenko's being a plant and about the 14th department existing. Okay. They being a mole in the CIA. I mean, you can't have it. I think it's a mistake in intelligence matters to think one source is 100% right or 100% wrong. Uh, and that's why when you, not you, but when the agency would castigate things as a monster plot or paranoia, I think a more selective and refined and fact-based approach is necessary. That's why you investigate people and then, what, then why you subsequently clear them. That's why you know, Dave Murphy is, is allowed to go off again and, and Pete Begley was allowed to go off again after they were cleared. But that doesn't mean you don't do the job of looking at these people if you want to keep your agency
1: safe. Okay, now I'll stop yeah. haranguing you about Galitzin and let's move on to Nosanko, who I know you prefer to talk about. So, um, uh, no, no. yeah, it's, it's, it's fine. Yeah, so, Nosanko, um, you know, I think the main um, uh, issue... I, I that, think about Galitzin. there might be
2: maybe yeah. four paragraphs in my 500-page book about it. But no, I way.
1: know, I know, I know, I thought, I agree, you didn't, you didn't focus on Galitzin so much, but I, I thought it was important because I think that if it hadn't have been for Galitzin, there wouldn't have been immediate suspicion cast on Nosanko. Right. The the suspicion that um, was cast on Nisenko happens because Angleton already believes Galitzin's claims. It wouldn't have been the initial
2: suspicion. But then once Nisenko started being interviewed, interviewed in depth by Bagley and other people in the Soviet division, uh, the suspicions grew.
1: Yeah. So I want to focus on the biggest one first this time rather than working up to it. So the, uh, the the issue about the Kennedy assassination. So, Nosenko comes over uh, just a couple of weeks after the Kennedy assassination. And he'd already been in a dialogue with, with Bagley and, and uh, other CIA agents for a year, year and a half before that. But he was still a defector in place, or, or you would say a supposed defector in place at that time. Uh, but he comes over a couple weeks after the Kennedy assassination. And the, the, the big bombshell that he delivers is that um, he says he's reviewed the Oswald files within the KGB. And he's certain that the KGB played no role in the Kennedy assassination. Now, um, a a lot of Nosenko's uh, detractors, um, including Bagley and Angleton, you know, later including writers like Edward J. Epstein, um, a lot lot of Nosenko's detractors say, well, that's the specific important piece of disinformation that he was sent over here um, uh, at that time to um, convey. And I guess, do you think that was disinformation? Do you think the Soviets actually had a role in the Kennedy assassination?
2: You're asking two different questions. Was it dif- disinformation? Yes. Did the Soviets have a role in the assassination? I don't believe they did. I don't believe that Bagley did or Angleton believed that. But I think the Russians at that point were so determined or so fearful uh, that the assassination of an American president, by a, a man who had lived in Russia previously could backfire on them and that it could be a nuclear war. I mean, they were trying to prevent it. And so they took an operative who they originally had designated uh, for a deception operation uh, to, to take the spotlight off the mole that already existed. And they now had to do an about face. They had to use him for another operation. And he came here, and he said things about his knowledge of the Kennedy of the Oswald investigation by the KGB that just didn't make any reasonable sense. Uh, he was in the second department. Why would he be looking at this? And then he said he read the entire file, and he said first it was as big as uh, maybe a, a quarter of an inch, and then he said it went on to eight volumes, then he denied having said that in the tapes. And on and on and on, as I said. Bagley wrote a, pa- a paper on this in the CIA that was called The, the Thousand Pages. And uh, Bagley, you know, was a graduate student and uh, he was very big on his research and his footnotes uh, and, you know, perhaps pretentiously or uh, so. And it became, he was maybe his own worst enemy in that. But point by point by point, I think was fairly well established, even by the Senkos supporters in the CIA, that he was not telling an accurate story about the Kennedy assassination. What I find fascinating is how the CIA could have this sort of bifurcated mind. Well, okay, he lied to us about the Kennedy assassination or ingrandized his role in that, but everything else he said is true. And uh, I, I just don't buy it. I think they both came from the same root.
1: But aren't, aren't you having the same bifurcated mind when you say, well, he, he lied to us about the Kennedy assassination, except that the essence of what he said was true, right, that the Soviets weren't involved in the, uh, um, in the assassination of President Kennedy? Well, uh,
2: No, I, I think there's been other substantiating evidence. I've seen no evidence that can make the case that the, uh, that the Soviets were involved in the Kennedy assassination.
1: Have you, do you, I do believe that the Soviets were no, not at all. But I don't I don't believe Nisenko about very much. But I, I uh, so I, I, I agree with you that he was lying there. I, I don't um, think that he um, that necessarily means he was a dispatched agent saying things that the Soviets to- told him to say. I think it's equally as likely that he was lying so that he could uh, raise his own stock with the CIA. And that this is the kind of information that would make them very anxious to take him as a defector and to to give him a a job in the CIA, et cetera. I think, you know, if once, once you sort of accept the idea that he's lying, which I th- it sounds like you and I both accept, then there's, um, yeah. And also the idea that the, the Soviets weren't involved in the Kennedy assassination, which it sounds like you and I also both accept. I think there's a lot of reasons that he he could have been, could have been lying about that.
2: And, and quite frankly, that's what makes this whole subject so fascinating. That's why I, I like to think my book can engage a reader because you have a mental discussion as you turn the pages. I mean, you're following Pete Bagley, trying to make sense of it. And you can look at it with, well, he's totally off base. He's going in wrong directions and drawing wrong conclusions. Or you can deduce the way he is at the facts and come to the same conclusion. Uh, and it's, you know, I'm trying to put the reader in, the shoes of a man who's on a quest to solve a mystery. And you don't have to, and because it's real life, not a Le Carre novel, you don't have to uh, agree with the conclusion.
1: Right, that's right. Now, let's, let's also talk about the, the mole hunt then. So, um, you know, I think one of the things it sounds that you and I do differ on about Nosanko is whether his allegation that there was a big mole was accurate or not. Um, and I think to, to sort of delve into that, you know, we might have to distinguish a little bit between a big mole and and small moles, because certainly there were small moles. Um, you know, your book talks uh, at, at length about um, uh, uh, one, uh, two of them, I guess, or one or two, depending on how you count the Czech agents, Carl um, and Hannah Ketcher. So they were certainly moles um, uh, inside the agency at the time. Um, and there were other small moles here and there. Um, uh, you know, various people who worked in, you know, the, the embassy garage in, in Moscow or, or, or things like that. But how would you distinguish between a big mole and, and, and a I, small mole? I mean, I, I sort of disagree with your premise that there are big moles
2: and small moles. Uh, I think a, a mole is very dangerous. And one of the things about moles, we never know what, what they've given away. I mean, we, we've never, you, you talked about uh, the Czech moles who were, we've to this day, there've never been enough backbeatings to to get out, to to authoritatively discern what they gave up and how effective they were. I I think any mole is is a dangerous one. We we can talk in in present times, there was a quote, little mole in the CIA, in the China uh, department, and he wound up having, uh, according to, Congressional investigation, I think ten people were executed because of him. But he was, you know, quote unquote a little mole. I I think that's a big mole.
1: You think someone like um would you call someone like uh, Eddie Lee Howard um a, a big mole, or would that be fair to characterize someone like that as a small mole?
2: I I I I I I'm not
1: necessarily sure he, he is a mole as much as a traitor. Right. Well, I mean if if, if there's no distinction between big moles and small moles, then um, then maybe why- make the distinction between moles and traders. OK, <laughs> I mean, is this is a cypher clerk
2: who who gives something up uh, a mole or a trader. Is John Walker a mole or is he a, a, a trader?
1: Right. I mean, to me, I guess I'm, I mean, you, I'm not fussed about that, that terminology. But I I guess the concept I was trying to get at more was um, if there was someone at a high level who had access to a lot of things that other people in the CIA were working on, not just things that they themselves were working on. That's kind of what I took to be the, the working definition of the big mole. Whereas my, my idea of a working definition of a small mole is just someone who can, um, you know, they're working on particular things and, and they might reveal some of those things, but they don't have access at a, at a very high level to a lot of the work of the whole agency. And, and I, thought, I thought that um, that sort of was the distinction between the Nosenko allegation of a big mole, you know, that there was an American Philby. So, you know, Philby had been at such a high level in the British Secret Service that he could reveal almost anything that the British Secret Service was doing in its anti-Soviet operations, you know, not, not just small, you know, not, not just things that he himself was working on. And I took Nosenko's allegation to be that there was someone like that inside the um, CIA and uh, um, I, I, I mean, I guess, do you think John Arthur Paisley was that person? And now we'll have to move over to John Arthur Paisley.
2: I think, I'm not sure I accept your vocabulary or your nomenclature. Uh, for example, uh, a more damaging spy than a Philby was, like I said, uh, John Walker, a Navy guy who gave up our codes. But he was just, in your terminology, a little mole. But he was, in many ways, the most damaging spy who, who ever a against America. Paisley's role, he was tied into lots of key operations. Uh, he, he had his hands in many cases by working with Soviet defectors. Uh, he was also involved with Nosenko. I, the case has been made that he ran, he was Nosenko's handler. Uh, I think Paisley was a mole, high up in the CIA. I think he was a, a dangerous mole. I think that's, that's one of the points that my book makes. Uh, and I think his role in the CIA has never been sufficiently investigated. And I would like to think that one of the consequences of my book, uh, one of the benefits I hope it would have is that there would be an investigation, a congressional investigation that i been called for in times uh, into the role that Paisley played, uh, get to the bottom of things and see who, if anyone, followed in his footsteps.
1: I'm sorry. Let's talk about Paisley now. Um, so, uh, Paisley, um, I'll, I'll, let me just give you just tell his tell his whole story, and then we can start talking about it.
2: Well, the whole story that begins with his suicide is that. Uh...
1: Actually, why not start at the beginning and work up to his suicide? I think the book starts with the suicide but let let's talk here sort of chronologically he You mentioned already he comes into the um, he comes to the attention of angleton in 1948 uh, when um, he is uh, paisley 's working as a radio operator for the United Nations in israel um, in the brand new state of israel and he's he 's present when Count Volk Bernadotte is assassinated. And uh, I think, so maybe start there, you know, sort of, so that's how he came to the attention of Angleton. Then he does a few other things, winds up joining the the, the CIA. So sort of take that, you know, take that right up, and then then we'll start having conversation about it, I think.
2: Angleton at this time is touring the Middle East, and what he's doing, weirdly enough, he's collecting assets. He's building his own private army. He's putting people on government payrolls, giving them what I think it was, a munificent five hundred dollars a month, uh, and but they're reporting directly to him, uh, and it seems that Paisley was one of the people he recruited as part of his private army. And then Paisley just sort of disappears uh, in a sense. From uh, he doesn't stay in. You would think on his radio at, at the UN and perform a, a radio role. He goes off to the University of Chicago. The goes there but he keeps on shipping out for long terms for summers taking terms off to uh, the merchant marines and going to the Soviet Union uh, on trips is he working for Angleton at this point is he working for the Russians at this point is he recruited by the Russians it would be Angleton and I don't really discuss this in, in the book because I couldn't find confirmation but He thought he was recruited in later years when when Paisley is now working at the CIA as an analyst Uh, and he sent off to various arms conferences and one in Finland. And Angleton made the case. Paisley was there to try to represent the United States uh, and say, well, this is what we were doing to find out what what the Russians were doing. And at this point, Angleton believed that Paisley was recruited. The Angleton then sort of goes off the scene and and, and Paisley then goes off, takes a year off from working at the CIA and he's sent to England. And this is what normally happens. He's working as a liaison to the British defense agency. And this is what agents usually happens to agents when they sort of have a sense of battle fatigue. And, And while he's there in England, he's given a flat right by the, U.S. Embassy a, a block away, or back then it was in Grosvenor Square. He's rented a private mailbox by a, a U.S. base uh, outside of town, up north, where we have nuclear bombers. And what's he doing there? And who's he? Is he working for? Is he working for Angleton or the Russians? The mystery uh, continues as Paisley is is now works as an analyst. He works with defectors. He's interviewing defectors at a, a CIA defection facility called Arlington Hall on the Maryland shore. He also is part of Bagley's team of people that's interviewing uh, Nisenko. And he's pretty vitriolic, perturbative, uh to Nisenko. And yet afterwards, once uh, he retires, uh, This is uh, Paisley. Uh, He's visiting Nisenko at uh, Nisenko's new home in in North Carolina. Uh, So again, their relationship continues and continues oddly. In his retirement, which is clearly a phony retirement because he still had access to the CIA and he never reported to his job at the insurance company. His secretary didn't even know what he looked like. Uh, He's working for a a, government a government finding that this, that's this that been set up by then-CIA director George Bush to make a comp, a competition between two sides in the CIA to get the, the latest assessment of Russian nuclear power. And Hazley is the liaison to, to the Hawks. He's, he's sort of clear to the world, and he's able to find out anything he wants about our enemy, and he gives them this information. He's also leaking to the press. And... and as is revealed by a New York Times reporter uh, after his death. Uh, and that's the interesting thing about someone like Paisley, what makes him a fascinating character. He's serving two masters, but he he seems to serve each one at a different time uh, with complete loyalty uh, or do the best job he can, uh, even while he then later betrays him. So this is the strange character uh, that attracts Bigley's attention after he retires. And, that, and, you know, that's a very broad and very brief and
1: <laughs> very episodic uh, summary of, mm-hmm. of Paisley's career. You mentioned now, and also in the book a lot, that you find it suspicious that um, Paisley spent time with Nosanko uh, after Nosanko had been cleared. And a- in fact, after Nosanko was employed by the CIA and ultimately retired from the CIA, you know, why would that be strange? I mean, Nosenko had been cleared and was employed by the CIA. Why, why was it strange that... Um, well,
2: uh, the strange is that they were so belligerent, or Paisley was so belligerent to Nosenko in these interrogations, according to Batley's memory. And second, how did they become friends? Uh, why did he, he, he find a need to check him out, to go to sail down to uh, North Carolina and spend time with Paisley, and such a long time, 10 days at a stretch. Uh, These
1: are all, I find that, problematic. I mean, Bagley himself, for instance, uh, became friends with um, KGB Lieutenant General Sergei Kondrashev. Um, right after the end of the Cold War. And I realized that, you know, with Paisley and, and Nosenko, this is before the end of the Cold War, but this is after a time that um, Nosenko had been fully uh, exonerated. Um, so why, you know, why is it, I guess, why is it strange for former antagonists to become friendly with each other? Or how is that different than Bagley becoming friendly with um, Sergei Kondrashev?
2: Well, Bagley was on a mission, in effect. And and they, they did not have a relationship prior to that. They were just lofty figures in the opposition to each one another. They had a knowledge of each other, but not a relationship. Paisley had a relationship with Nosenko, a patriotic uh, one, and yet they somehow become bosom buddies. Uh, and why? How did this come about? I, I think it raises a, a lot of questions. Uh, you, you think it was it, Makes sense that it was just banal or benign?
1: Yeah, I mean, because they were were both working for the CIA for a long period of time. You know, I don't know whether their paths crossed professionally or not, but um, it it doesn't seem impossible. And it does seem to me like I've certainly experienced uh, episodes in my own life where there's people that I had great enmity for at one point in time and years later um, reconciled with. I don't think that's such an unusual thing. I think
2: it's improbable at best, but, uh, but.
1: I guess that, that raises the question then. What do you think that um, Nosenko was still doing that late? Like, even if you think he was um, dispatched here with certain disinformation say to 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 say that the soviets weren't involved in the kennedy assassination and to cast doubt on the the big mole theory that had been um, pr- propagated by glitzen and even if that's what he was dispatched here for as a soviet dispatched agent you think he was still doing things for the soviet you know soviets 12 14 15 years later and what what kind of things uh, I,
2: yes i think you hit the nail on the head i think there were still agents in place working for the soviets and i think Nisenko had a knowledge of this, and so did Paisley. And they were, in effect, handlers uh, to the next generation that was uh, embedded in in, in the agency and elsewhere in the government.
1: Well, I mean, immediately after the end of the Cold War in the early 90s, um, there was a window of time where uh, a lot of the KGB files got opened up. Uh, People who had access to them were willing to sell them to Western writers and journalists and things like that. A lot of books were written. were there any revelations in, in any of those materials? Uh, you know, for instance, we learned a lot more about what people like Kim Philby had specifically been doing, you know, a lot more about uh, what George Blake specifically had been doing. You know, in any of those revelations, did we, did we learn a lot more about anything that, I, that, that um, say, Nosanko had been doing?
2: I, I think the most we learned was the existence, through, through Begley, of this 14th department headed by General Bribanoff, uh, that was involved in aggressive counterintelligence. As for the specifics, we didn't get that. And I think that's one of the problems with our own counterintelligence program that we haven't pursued that. I think one of the lasting effects, really, of this internal war within the CIA, as you, you know, talk about Begley and Angleton on one side, uh, Colby and the others on another side, uh, writers on one side, and David Martin. Ed Eckstein on the other uh, is that we've sort of made battle lines rather than trying to investigate. Let's say the questions or your, your conclusions are correct. Okay. Let's go in there into the weeds and, and establish it. Uh, or, or let's say Bagley was correct. Let's try to establish that he was, I think that's a real hole in our intelligence activities and something that needs to be remedied.
1: You know, I, would, I would agree with that, but I think there there was a window of time where a lot of that work was done. It's going to be a lot harder to do it now that Vladimir Putin's in charge of, the, of all those files than it was in the early 90s. But You know, I think we at least for a while he's in charge. Yeah, at least for a while he's in charge, right? Uh, You know, I don't know that we're going to get the the KGB files open to us in the near future, but um, maybe in the middle near future. But uh, but they were they were open to us for a few years, and that that's sort of what what I'm asking about is why we we were able to learn about the specific uh, work of a lot of um, Soviet penetration agents in the West. Um, but but yet, even though there'd been uh, such a mystery, people were very interested in Osanko. You know, maybe people were less interested in John Arthur Paisley at that time, but um, people were very interested in Osanko, and I, I just haven't heard um, of anything coming out uh, uh, after the end of the Cold War that really documents any work that Osanko was doing well, in the United States after he defected. I mean, Bagley goes and
2: acts... <laughs> as his own sort of intelligence service after the Berlin Wall falls down, after there's this sort of rapprochement, brief as it is between the East and West. And he cultivates a group of of former KGB officers, uh, the spokesman for which is uh, Krandtchev. And Krandtchev tells him point blank uh, that Nosenko was a deception agent, that he in fact had personally been given uh, the chance to run the Senko, an opportunity uh, he he refused. Uh, and he didn't accept that uh, job from the 14th department. So, you know, I, I would think if you're willing to accept Bagley, that's the sort of proof you're, you're looking for. Did Bagley get a file? No, but he got it from a, uh, a very good source. Uh, however, you know, the CIA Some of their voices there would raise, you know, impugning vaguely say, well, uh, A, where's the file? And uh, where is Krandeshev's uh, documentation? And the people in this cadre around Krandeshev, how come their names are conveniently not identified?
1: Yeah, I I guess I would, to those questions, I would also add, you know, even in the lack of a file and even in the lack of identification of who these other names are, what are some specifics, right? You know, so to just say, for Congress to have to say, you know, Nosenko was a dispatched agent. I'd still like to know what did he do after he was a dispatched agent. If he was a dispatched agent,
2: yeah, uh, and that's why I think we need a congressional investigation uh, to get to the bottom of this. I mean, wouldn't that be fun to read? I mean, you know, you also. <laughs> You know, think or implying that you, know, you can get these easy answers in these files. How many years has it been since Kennedy was shot? Do you think you know everything or not you that one knows everything? I mean, I think there are still secrets buried away. That's you know, the thing what one learns about in, intelligence agencies. I, one of my earlier books, I go to the CIA and I'm meeting with this official and, and I'm trying, I want to tell the true story about this case. And he starts laughing. Uh, And he says, well, you're never going to get the true story. You might get what we want to release. Uh, And secrets are the currency of intelligence agencies. They're capital that they don't want to touch. Uh, And they they put away for uh, rainy days or moods or whatever certain mood strikes them. And we just haven't gotten it all yet. And one of the purposes of my book is to say, hey, We've been accepting something as either black or white, and we need to get to the bottom of things.
1: Yeah, although I think an exception to what you just said might be that window of time in the early 90s when um, a lot of um, Russians who were in possession of KGB files you know, could get cash for selling those files, and the Soviet Union was was gone, and uh, um, they didn't have a great need to protect those files. So I think there there was that rare window where suddenly you could get a lot more information than than and in, and in in the other the times. files they had
2: access to, uh, yeah. I mean, yeah, and some were based on memory; they would even you know have to memorize what they had and write it down. But you know, the Fourteenth Department files, uh, the Ribbentrop group. Uh, I haven't seen those files ever being released, and I've. You know, I
1: don't know if we ever will. So let's move ahead to the suicide, which is sort of that's where the book starts. And that's an extremely intriguing episode. And I think um, one of the great things this book does is really focus a lot uh, on that. A lot of the other stuff, you know, we've been arguing a lot because there have been a lot of other things written about a lot of the other stuff. But the uh, um, the the suicide stuff, I think you you dig in deeper on than, than anyone else really has done there. There were some newspaper accounts at the time, but you go a lot deeper than that. So talk about that it's
2: i think it's september 1978 uh bright autumn day uh on the chesapeake bay there's a, a sailing boat the brillig is his name out of, uh, of lewis carroll goes aground. the coast guard goes to investigate uh they see bullets unfired cartridges on, on the deck they go below into the galley they find uh, secret government papers mention things like satellites and missile telemetry. They find a row of electronic equipment, and one of the devices is later, later identified as a burst transmitter, uh, which is a way to communicate with satellites uh, often used by spies to send messages and quick bursts uh, to, to these satellites for later decryption. Uh, They find a a briefcase that when they go through the papers, identifies or says the owner is a John Arthur Paisley who's working as a, in effect, a newspaper delivery man for the Washington Post. And the letter is uh, chastising uh, Paisley uh, saying that I haven't received all my papers, but uh, we're still paying, I'm still paying you nonetheless. And and there's no sign of the uh, boat's owner. Uh, Later it's decided that the boat's owner is John Arthur Paisley, a retired CIA official. 10 days after the boat is first found, a body wrapped in 36 pounds of chains still manages to float up to the surface. Uh, The CIA, the body has been ravaged by the Maryland Bay crabs. The CIA, however, says that this is the body of John Arthur Paisley. They can't get fingerprints because not only have the fingerprints been washed away or been uh, ruined by the water, uh, but the the CIA says incredibly that they've lost the fingerprint records for John Arthur Paisley. There's a a very quick autopsy. Uh, The autopsy identifies him as five foot 10. He's wearing uh, briefs that are size uh, 32. Later, it turns out that Paisley is 5'7 and has 36 inch waist. None of this makes sense. The body's quickly cremated. Uh, his wife, the CIA claims his wife get, gets permission. The wife later says uh, she didn't get permission. And, and that's the end of the mystery until uh, a local reporter on the Maryland shore gets a hold of it. And then the CIA adds fuel to the fires. You know, they've made a whole career about telling lies. you think they'd be good at it. But they immediately uh, start saying some outrageous ones that Paisley was a low-ranking official and that he was completely retired and had no access to uh, confidential documents. But it turns out later that he was a high-ranking official on the white side, as you said before, the anal- analyst side, and he had gone back to work on special projects for the CIA, if in fact he ever did retire.
1: Yeah, I mean, so you certainly, you brought to light quite quite a lot of detail there that I think makes a strong case that this may not have been um, Paisley, who, whose body was was found. Um, but I want to poke around a little bit about um you know, I think the only real motive that you mention in the book for why he would choose that time to flee, perhaps clandestinely flee the country and move to the Soviet Union, was that um, he um, was told that he was going to be subject to a routine polygraph test that essentially all CIA officers of his rank are routinely subject to. That that part I was a little you know wondering about. Do you really think that would be enough to 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 cause somebody to 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 walk away from this, even if he was living a double life, to walk away from this double life that he'd been living his whole life well, and flee to the Soviet Union?
2: Let's just perhaps that was the straw that broke the camel's back because at this point his life is in chaos. Uh, he's acting bizarrely. He's putting ads in newspapers about a a wallet that's missing, yet he later is seen with the wallet and has the credit cards. Uh, He's, you know, acting in an erratic way. And also there's a CIA officer who has identified to the CIA uh, security office that Paisley is his chief suspect for being a mole. It's this fingering, if you will, uh, of Paisley that forces the CIA Office of Security to look at him a bit and they find out that he hasn't been flooded or hasn't had a lie detector for well over 20 years when people are in his positions or usually at least every other year uh, should be go through a lie detector test. So they send him a very routine letter uh, saying we're going to do the background check, talk to your relatives, and all this seems to build ahead in Paisley's world. Perhaps uh, that he sends a distress message uh, to his handlers, you know get me out of here. The jig is up
1: you know he wasn't although you, although you you note that the they wanted to give him a lie detector test in part because an, another high ranking CIA officer had suspected uh, Paisley of being a mole. Paisley's not told that right he doesn't know that he's under suspicion of being a mole. He just gets a very anodyne letter saying you need to get your routine uh, lie detector test, right well. Did he uh, had, did he
2: know about the other suspicions? You and I don't know. Uh, you don't know what his sources were in the agency. And just the fact that one gets a letter like that after so many years, all this coming together, uh, could have lit a spark. I mean, it, it's very hard to say when a Asian place uh, falls apart. You know, referred to the Philby spy ring. Uh, did those guys have to run when they did to uh, France, uh, initially, uh, Burgess and McLean? Uh, did both of them have to go? Uh, I think there's some question of that. I mean, they're moving in on them. They could feel what was happening, but I think uh, not both at that time. I think they, It's
1: you know, living behind enemy lines takes its toll. Yeah, I think McLean, McLean definitely had to go at that time, but Burgess would be the one where you could have a debate about that. But McClain had actually been tipped by Philby that he was about to be arrested. Um, so he would have been arrested the next day. Uh, the uh, um, Also with, with Paisley, I mean, a, a lie detector test, if he would have failed the lie detector test, then that might have affected his job status at the CIA. But it wouldn't. A, a lie detector is not even admissible in court. He couldn't have been in any criminal trouble for that. There would have been, needed to be some other kind of evidence against. I mean, him.
2: I think as a lawyer, you're looking at this in a much too legalistic way. Here is a man who had been possibly working as a double agent for a decade, two decades, whatever, and suddenly a flurry of events are throwing his whole world uh Turning it upside down. He had just also left his wife. Uh he 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 was he seemed to be a man who was experienced chaos, who was experiencing chaos. I think I'm certainly not a psychologist, but I think you can see that he was on uh, in the midst of, of having a breakdown uh of, of some sort. So his life was going around in tatters. He was talking about to telling people he wanted to go back to his merchant marines. I mean, things that made no logical sense. Uh, and, and I think this letter uh, from the CIA Office of Security, which he could very well believe which was just, was just the tip of the iceberg in their suspicions, uh, especially if you have a secret that you're hiding, uh, sent him in to say, get me out of here. And he reached out and I, I believe that's what happened. I mean, when also you look, you know, I, I said before some of the things when you look at the suicide, it made no sense. Even the bullet wound uh, that he received as the as the official investigation said, he wrapped himself up in 18 or 36 pounds of chains has then has to hobble to the side of the deck he then throws himself into the water. And while in midair, he's right-handed, he reaches across his head and shoots himself behind the left ear with this gun, which is never found. It just doesn't work. I mean, uh, Yeah, I,
1: I, I, was, I, I, I was, I was, persu- I was persuaded by that. Um, although I am curious, um, whose body, whose body could it have been? So am I. <laughs> this is,
2: <laughs> and, uh, It'd be very interesting to find out. Was it just someone uh, that had been found by a, a, some hobo in the streets of Washington, or whose? Uh, it, it's it's a real mystery, and again, one of the questions that you'd like to have the answer to. I mean, just as in the Kennedy assassination, one can list all the questions that still remain.
1: So one can in this Paisley quote-unquote suicide. And, and also I was interested in possible alternative hypothesis, which is that, um, you know, I think you were very persuasive in in the facts you lined up to say this this was more likely than not somebody else's body, not Paisley's. Paisley may not have died there, probably didn't die there. But I, I wonder about the leap from that to um, thinking that that necessarily means he fled to the Soviet Union rather than just thinking he was trying to um, engineer his own disappearance and just, you know, take up some different identity somewhere here in the United States. You know, it's not an uncommon phenomenon for, for people. I mean, that doesn't happen every day, but it's not unheard of for people to kind of, you know, fake their own death so they can get a fresh start. And they don't all um, go to the Soviet Union. So I'm, I'm sort of wondering, you know, what your thoughts on that were.
0: Well,
2: I, as an investigator, was never able to establish what happened to, to Paisley after this suicide. You asked a very good question, whose body was that? I do know, and I tell the story, about what Krondyshev tells Pete Bagley in Moscow, uh, that Pete Bagley is taken to a cemetery in Moscow and not told directly, but the implication is that Paisley is buried here under assumed name by the 14th department. Did he go directly to moscow did he live for some time in the states his wife receives a strange postcard from uh south america i think peru Uh, was he down there was that sent by a a soviet agent these are all questions that i think that linger that make this story which is a story about an investigation about a quest uh so resonating and, and 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 call for i think a new investigation uh, with uh, (laughs) governmental powers to get to the bottom of things.
1: Yeah. Now, um, last thing I'll ask about uh, Bagley's conclusion, and and then I'll ask just for some larger thoughts is um, so Bagley more or less concludes that um, based on the evidence that you've just summarized that, that, that Paisley was the big mole and that, that Paisley in fact was responsible for some of the um, most famous blown operations Um, including, um, for instance, the the uh, the the uh, Colonel Peter Popov, who was one of our 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 top agents in place in the Soviet Union during the Cold War, uh, getting getting apprehended and arrested and executed. Now, Bagley, you know, had previously in his own book, not that long ago, but in 2007, um, identified uh, Edward Ellis Smith, a CIA security officer who had been fired from the American embassy in Moscow, um, as the mole who had blown the Popov operation. Um, but, but now he's identified um, uh, Paisley as the mole who, who blew the same operation. And it's, it's, I certainly understand I think that he, he
2: theorized in, in, in that book that that was. I and again, you said I don't think he was the main source. I think later he realized that Paisley uh, was a conduit for this information to the Russians.
1: Yeah, I mean I guess the reason I bring up that point it, it's not that I, I I certainly do accept that, you know, by the time Bagley uh, was was talking to you now that he had more information than he had back when he wrote Spy Wars. I I get all that. People change their minds based on new evidence and that's a good thing. But I'm but I'm just sort of a little bit have concerns about the kind of cast of mind that sort of, you know, that I think is is the sort of monster plot or sick think cast of mind that just sort of starts from the idea, well, there's a big mole. We, you know, and so I'll name this person. If it's not that, I'll name this person. If it's not that, I'll name this person. And I, I just wonder if this is is Bagley, you know, just just doing more of that.
2: I, I think you know, being a detective, you you have many suspects, and you keep on building your case. And more information you get, uh, and this was his, his his ultimate conclusion. Was he right? Well, again. That's why we need the, the, this congressional investigation. I mean, in many ways, this is like an appeal Poirot mystery when you're you think, well, it's you know, the butler did it. No, it's the candlestick maker, you find out later on. I mean, you can be wrong and still ultimately be right. I think he starts with the sense that these are not accidents that these cases are blown and we're not being told we being not just the CIA, but the American people, the whole story. Something else is going on, that our enemy is involved in aggressive counterintelligence. And he then goes on this path to try to find the answers. In a Le Carre novel, you know, George Smiley, at the end of the day, can pick out the one man, and, and that's it. And it's nice and clean and neat.
1: Real life is a, a bit more, more complicated. Absolutely. And and that, that that leads me to I guess what'll be my last big question to you, which is um as you noted before I'll have what, my last big answer then. Okay, yeah. My 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 you know, you talked about when we were briefly uh um, uh talking uh about Dave Murphy, you, you noted that the the French intelligence services were penetrated. And of course, the British intelligence services were very famously massively penetrated. And the, the West German intelligence services were penetrated. And it might be true, as you posit, that our intelligence services were also penetrated. Um, and um, so I guess, you know, would you say that it was actually the Soviets rather than the West that won the intelligence wars?
2: I would think, sadly, so. Uh, I, I think that's a conclusion. And and I just hope it's not the case right now. Uh, you know, we've been talking about the past and one of the, the values we've been hearing about lately, and again, my knowledge is just what I read in the New York Times about American intelligence being able to help the Ukrainians. And they've been talking about military spies in the sky, et cetera. Uh, I wonder if there are agents in place or, or uh, ground observers or even moles that are helping the Americans uh, pass information on to the Ukrainians now. Uh, But at that stage, in that stage of the Cold War, uh, we sure took a beating uh, thanks to uh, faults in our intelligence activities.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I certainly would agree. I agree that the the Soviets won the human intelligence war. But that kind of leads me to my second question, which is, why fight the human intelligence war? It, 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 what's the point of it? You know, we've got signals intelligence. We did win the Cold War. You know, what, what's, what's the point of being involved in the human uh, intelligence war?
2: I don't, you know, there are many people who would, who would agree that we, you know, human intelligence has, has this day is passed. I wouldn't. I think that an agent in the field, a man in place in Moscow Center is going to get the sort of information that an eye in the sky can never get, that, you know, a bugging a phone uh, could never get. Uh, I, I think flesh and blood and breathing agents inside the enemy's camp is will always be the gold standards for uh, gathering intelligence.
1: Well, if... if- if you agree that we won the Cold War, even though we lost the Human Intelligence War, I know this is a little counterfactual, but what, what do you think would have gone differently if we had won the Human Intelligence War?
2: I mean, <laughs> you're asking me to re- re- rewrite history. And, and what is winning? What is win- I mean, is winning that the fact that there's peace, but our, our defense budget... Uh, seems to be affecting our American way of life, our schools, our our, our neighborhoods, our communities. Uh, you know, winning is in the eye of the beholder, I, I think, and, and uh, I'd have to give a, a lot more thought uh, to what what you mean for larger understanding. I think we could debate for days about what winning actually means. I mean, yeah, we, have well, a, we have a black uh, intelligence budget, I think it's, $80 billion a year on projects uh, that we're not even aware of. I, I, I did a, a New York Times piece recently about a man who conned the Beltway, and, and he was able to you know, literally steal billions of this money. Is that winning uh, the money that goes into the black budget uh, that's being wasted? I'm not sure.
1: No, I agree. I'd like to shut it down. That's really what I'm saying. I don't think there's any benefit in um, running a, a CIA that's involved in clandestine operations. You know, I think the... But then the what will we you know, talk about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I love reading about the Cold War, and I, I think there's a lot more to be said about it. But I think, the, I think the verdict of history is basically out. In fact, when you talk about the present, I wonder what your thoughts about this would be. It seems to me that probably one of the best... Uh, uses of American intelligence that I think I've ever seen is um, uh, President Biden openly revealing, you know, in public press conferences recently on a number of times, we know that the Soviets are going to invade this place on this date and kind of wrong footing Putin by doing that. Now, I take it that all of that information is coming from signals intelligence and, uh, and that it's being used in an open, public and transparent way so that there's, there's no human intelligence element here, really, and there's no, nothing clandestine about it. Well,
2: one interpretation of why Biden did that, and it's fascinating that he did it, is that we have someone close, close to the Russian, Russian military, Russian plans. And that person was becoming under suspicion. So if the president then comes out and and points it in effect on signals intelligence, the suspicion that was being focused on this agent in place behind enemy lines uh, would go away. Is that possible?
1: I don't know. It's a good novel, though. It's possible, but I, I would say it's unlikely because of the quantity of the information.
2: I, I actually think uh, it's really unlikely that, that why Biden. We would, would make that uh, so clear. Why uh, the U.S. Secretary of Defense would make that so clear that we're giving them this information, because it also puts us. If you know, Russia is looking for an excuse to expand their war, it puts U.S. in the crosshairs, or it puts certainly NATO countries in the crosshairs. The,
1: the fact that we that we're announcing that we've uh, we're able to 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 monitor their communications and that yeah, we know when uh, they're going to Yeah,
2: and. and reconnaissance flights, whatever, it takes away plausible deniability that we're passing on this information uh, to the Ukrainians. And therefore, Russia is looking for an excuse to justify expanding the war to NATO. Here we are providing them with one.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's what I'm advocating is that it's a good thing to take away that plausible deniability that that all, all the secrecy never benefited the United States and that that just, you know, open transparency about things like this would benefit the United States more. That, that's really what my point I was trying to make is I, I don't see the benefit. You know, this idea that, um, you know, the, the Soviets, they were able to be um, so much more effective at the secret wars than than, than Western intelligence was. I, I feel like that got them nothing. Right. And, and that there's just no benefit to winning those kind of wars. And that um, the, the, the benefit is to doing things that will, um, uh, you know, affect, um, um, you know, tactical geopolitics, I guess, like saying we know that we know that Putin's about to invade here and just wrong putting him by publicly announcing that. I, I guess you, I guess you just you know, we can just disagree on that or you can respond to that if you want.
2: Well, I'll let it just, your opinion is valid. I'm not sure if it's right or wrong. I think Putin put aside Ukraine has pursued a policy of of aggressive counterintelligence, you know, tracking down enemy agents, hacking uh, U.S. elections. Uh, What has he gained by that? Uh, Well, it's allowed him to maintain this image of Mother Russia. It's allowed him to remain in power. Uh, or are or these moves in an end game which he sees Russia becoming a true world power again it's a world power now, largely because it has a nuclear arsenal
1: yeah well if we could uh if we could uh if we had perfect human intelligence, you know, I guess what, what I'll, I'll let you go in a sec. I see. Yeah. Uh, if we had perfect human intelligence, what would be the benefit of um, uh, what would be the benefit? What would be the most beneficial use right now? Like if, if we could place spies, you know, any place we wanted to and they would be effective and they would be undiscovered. You know, how, how would that affect, say, what's going on in Ukraine now? How could we best deploy them to affect well, what's going on in Ukraine right now?
2: You're asking me to play novelist. Okay, if I can embed a spy in the Kremlin, I sure would like to know what Putin's end game is and what's he going to do next. And you know, living in a nuclear age where we're facing an enemy that has nuclear weapons, uh, I sure would like to know how serious he is about using them. Uh, these are all questions that. I think an agent in place would conceivably get nice. If I were making decisions, if I were advising the president of the United States, I mean, what is the job of, of intelligence? It's not to make decisions, It's to provide information to the decision makers so that they can make the decisions. Uh, and these would all be valuable to know.
1: Well, I will give you the last word. I'm sorry I kept you so much over. Uh, thank you so you know, much. I actually
2: had a great time talking to you. And it was, uh, I appreciate your knowledge and your erudition. It, it was just great. So it's it's fun to talk to someone who who knows the area. Uh, As yeah. so like I do, you probably know it better than I do, and and, and that, that to me is 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 just very it's
1: gratifying and an education. And uh, this is what I do. It's fun. I love it. Yeah, I love it too. And I really appreciate your giving me all this time and, and standing up to my interrogation as well as you did. It was terrific. Um, so this was Howard Bloom, uh, author of The Spy Who Knew Too Much, uh, with an extended episode of the Politics Guys uh, interview. The book comes out June 6th? June 7th. June 7th. And it is uh, published by HarperCollins. And it should be available um, in all uh, physical and online bookstores everywhere, I suppose. Yes. Yes. Okay. Well, thank thank you so much.
2: Thank you. Pleasure speaking with you. Take care. Bye-bye.
0: We hope you enjoyed this Politics Guys interview. And if you did, we'd really appreciate it if you could mention us on social media or however else you share things you like. It would also be great if you could rate and review us on your podcast app. If you've got a question, comment, correction, gripe, manifesto, whatever, you want to share it with us, you can reach us a bunch of ways. Mail at politicsguys.com, as well as there's our supporters exclusive Discord channel, and we're also on Facebook and Twitter. And if you'd like to become a supporter of the show, you can find out more about that at patreon.com politicsguys or politicsguys.com support. And links to all that are always in our show notes. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, and Ryan Beasley. We'll be back with a new episode this coming weekend. We hope you'll join us.